Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. It's been four years that Leave Your Mark has been up and running. And during these four years, uh, we've had a fantastic podcast sponsor in Matrix Fitness. I have to thank Greg Lawler for his commitment to this podcast and his commitment and his team's commitment to what we're trying to do is helping you in the community see and listen to some of the best in the business of human performance. And to talk about the best in the business, well, right back at Matrix Fitness, they are the best in the business at what they do, and they serve uh, the continuum of human performance from the day-to-day person who is looking just to stay fit and, uh, and to aspire to be healthy to the person who wants to be out uh, performing at their best in an athletic endeavor. They have all the equipment that spans that continuum. They're ready to help you, the practitioner, or you, the person who wants to build your at-home facility or a facility or an institutional facility to have success with your clients or with yourself. So I encourage you to take a look at their products. Head over to teamupwithmatrix.ca today and check out what they're doing. They have outstanding equipment and outstanding customer service. So once again, thank you to Matrix for supporting Leave Your Mark and take some time today to check them out. Wow, what's going on at ReconditioningHQ.com these days is insane. Uh, you can find the entire R1 Foundations course online and available to digest at your leisure. The R2 Designs course is right there as well, fully loaded. R3 Collab is a combination of online material all about the neurological system and then a live laboratory where we dive deep on everything reconditioning. These three courses walk you through the process of reconditioning all the information and what we've done now is we've attached to all of this a mastermind community and when you're in the mastermind community it's 20 bucks a month uh, and you have access to weekly meetings that we're going to be doing on case studies 
all kinds of gem material from things that we've done, uh, guest presenters, guest interviews. We have Matt Jordan coming up in a few weeks, Nick Ward from Altus coming in a few weeks as well. So we've got some outstanding people coming as guests in the future. We are basically in that mastermind combining uh, revolving eight-week labs for each of those courses. So they're cycling through. We're going to do eight weeks and take a break to another eight weeks. So if you're in R1 and you want to come in and learn while you're in the mastermind, we have meetings once a week for an hour to go through the material. So it keeps you accountable, allows you to touch base with what you've learned, ask your questions. It really allows you to dive deep on all the information. On top of that, because the world is starting to open up a little bit, we are going to have our first live lab in Montreal, May 14th, 15th for R1 Foundations. And effectively, what we're going to do is when you purchase a course, you have all that material online. You have access to the mastermind and the community material and the community learning. And then you can come with to this meeting on the weekend for two days and just dive deep on how to play with all the information. And so it's not a, a, a teaching lab as much as it is a learning lab, a trying lab, a context lab. And that's what we've got uh, big time for everybody these days. And then on top of that, the International Hockey Performance Summit is pivoted to virtual June 10 to 12. All the powerful content, we have kept it all in there. We've revised the curriculum. You can go online, take a look at it. The SCAF Summit pre-summit is going to be there too. So three days of incredible information is going to be available to you. If you have an interest in hockey performance or foundationally the people People who are speaking at this thing are the top of the world at what they do. So you're going to take away whether it's hockey related or just training and performance related. It's there for you. So come and join us uh, virtually. It's all there for the taking. And then on top of that, if you are interested in ski performance training and you want to learn to train to train uh, or train to compete with your athletes that you're working with off snow, I am doing a ski program, a workshop on April 23rd, 24th in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. It is also virtual as well. So it's live and virtual. It's a hybrid event. You can jump on that and that's available right now. Going to be dropping the hammer on that April 23rd, 24th. So uh, look forward to having you with us in anything we're doing reconditioning today. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to check out all our offerings. As an avid listener of the Leave Your Mark podcast, I'm sure you recognize the process that I take our guests through in learning about their lives and understanding what it is taken for them to become the professionals and the successes that they've had in their lives and effectively there's a lot of learning that we go through and everybody that I talk to talks about mentorship and influential people in their lives and the podcast has always been my offering to the community at large uh, for you to see and learn from the insights of others. But now what I'm doing is uh, at the beginning of May I am launching the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, and this is going to be my stewardship process for helping you become the professional you want to be through mentorship, through reflection, through directed conversation, giving you skills, providing accountability, 
and talking about your progress and inside a group of people who are all trying to do the same thing, providing you with a, a lens uh, of, of reflection on yourself and the things that you want to accomplish and recognize that you need to put as much into yourself as you do into others. And this industry is crazy when it comes to us taking care of everybody else but not taking care of ourselves. So I want to change that. That's what the LYM Life Lab is all about. I encourage you to head over to the Leave Your Mark website, which is lymlab.com. Check out what we're offering in the LYM Life Lab section. You can also download two free videos that I created that are a starter kit to this process and looking at creating change in your life. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, grab yourself a hat while you're there because Leave Your Mark hats are sick lids if I do say so myself. And lastly, I want to uh, invite you to check out the latest episodes and please take the time to go over and leave a comment, leave a rating on your favorite streaming service because it helps us get out to more people. So without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the opportunity to chat with Dan Howells. Dan is a high-performance coach with a career spanning over 15 years of work in elite sport, both in the UK and the US. Dan is a certified strength and conditioning coach and has worked with Olympic and Paralympic programs, the US and Great Britain ski teams, the English Institute of Sport, WASPs Rugby Club, England Rugby Sevens team, Great Britain's Rugby Sevens, and the Houston Astros of the Major League Baseball League, as well as focusing on creating impact and success within performance sport organizations. Dan is passionate about creating real-world learning opportunities for developing coaches and practitioners. Coaching coaches is something he is heavily invested in. Dan is married and has two sausage dogs as well as a successful sausage dog hotel business. I'm pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Dan. So I (laughs) I gotta take a part of the sausage dog thing. So when did you fall in love with sausage dogs? So myself and my wife got together and and we both realized that quite quickly we had this, uh, you know, love for for the same dog breed. Um, And living in London at the time, your space is a premium based on the cost of living over here. And our first house was a very small house with a small garden. So we felt that uh, the, the, the love for the breed and... The fact that we didn't want to bring any bigger breeds into that kind of environment, we needed space for them to, to move around. Um, yeah, fit perfectly. So we got ourselves uh, a pair of sausage dogs, brother and sister, at the time, and and that's when it started, basically, um, mm. years ago. You got the short hair ones or the longer haired ones there? Yes, yeah, so as are both short haired. Yeah, both both short haired. One's a miniature, and one's what we call like a, a hybrid, a, mi- a midi between the the miniature and the the standard size. Cool. We'll circle back to that a little bit yeah. later. But uh, where where did you grow up, and uh, what were you dreaming about being when you were little, Dan Howells? Yeah, so I grew up in in the in the Midlands in the UK. So Warwickshire was the county I I grew up in. Uh, I grew up, um, you know, not really having a focus on anything actually, other than just you know school and friends and 
and just being really relatively neutral in my focus at that point, just going through life. And, and then I started to take in onto sport and rugby specifically reasonably late, 13, 14, compared mm. to my sort of peers at the time who'd been playing since sort of like tag rugby, you know, six, seven, eight years old. So I took to that in my teenage years and realized that I had you know, reasonable talent at the time for it. And, and then started to change my perspective, become a little bit more focused on, on what potentially I could do from a, a career perspective. And, and the first instance of what I wanted to do was to be, become a rugby player. Um, mm. And so easy to dedicate my time to school like that. Uh, a little bit harder as I came out towards my university years. But um, yeah, that was my little Dan Howell's vision. I didn't really have a career in mind. You know, I, mm. I wasn't somebody that wanted to be a, a fireman or a doctor. I, I just, I don't think I asked enough questions about the real world at that age, mm. you know, to, mm. to understand more than just the fact that I love sport. And so I was just focusing on that. Were your parents um, academic drivers or did they just kind of let you drive your own bus in some sense? Yeah, they, they were pretty uh, supportive and like I always remember having a very good academic feature at home as well. So through my homework and my mother was actually a teacher. So mm-hmm. she was a primary school teacher and she actually taught myself and some of my best friends throughout early years at primary school. So it was always heavily featured within the house, but it was never forced upon me. I think mm-hmm. I just, you know, I was very academically driven through sort of junior school and high school. I just, it, it just, was normal for me to come home and do my homework, um, get that out of the way. And then that led to other opportunities like going out to kick a ball about with my friends. So mm. I just saw it as a process within the day. Um, but yeah, not heavily forced upon me, but like it just, it, it themed in my life because my mother was a teacher and actually mm. my dad was a, an agricultural lecturer. So although it wasn't the, the, the standard routes of education that I was used to, he was, he was lecturing in a, in a college at agricultural school so yeah it was a feature but I probably didn't realize how much until now you know because <laughs> uh, it wasn't a forced feeling mm, cool what did what did you like about playing rugby what did you fall in like with yeah I mean I always enjoy so I lived in a village and you had to find activities for yourselves you had to entertain yourself mm-hmm. back in that, those days in the villages so we had your close close group of friends and we would be playing ball games on the street uh, and the local parks. There was a, lots of different sporting activities going on, but each one required interaction with someone else. They weren't lone ranger sports. They were always football, tennis, rugby. Uh, we would always find a way to compete and, and almost play, pretend to be your superstar heroes. <laughs> um, I enjoyed that, that element of competition with my friends. Um, and then as I grew up and through the, the process of team sports and competing. Um, you know, I liked the, the nervousness that came with competition as well. I enjoyed that. Um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't always good at it. Like it got the better of me sometimes, but when I thrived on it, it was a really enjoyable experience. Mm. Ultimately I enjoyed going out there with, with my friends and, and having fun. And mm. I guess leading by example was a nice, perspective to have I, I wanted to lead by example I was always sort of a captain type of feature um so I always wanted to to go out and do the team proud and do my my friends proud um what was yeah. the nervousness feature was it that the fear of making mistakes or just a, a fear of yeah. uh yeah yeah I think um 
I think if I was to have, I was, I was in an academy through from the age of 14 through to sort of 20. And I think one of the biggest things that held me back was just this, this, and yeah, maybe a fear of making mistakes, but taking control of your thoughts and emotions, which mm-hmm. I have so much more clarity on now, you know, as a mm-hmm. practitioner, um, that I wish I could have had some of that as a, a youth athlete growing up. And mm-hmm. I think that's much more accessible, available these days. Um, you know, what with even just social media and people being able to maybe source solutions for themselves as young adults. Mm. Um, I think that held me back quite considerably because if I could have attached some behavior changes in, you know, for me, it was something as simple as say tackle technique, you know, ability to go and just instill some repetition based practice around that and change my emo- change my association with that emotional feeling around mm. uh, the mistakes component of that skill mm. could have probably had some, some different successes. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, you wish you knew what you knew now type of situation. <laughs> what, how did the game of rugby serve you in the sense when you look back at it now, how did it shape you as a, as a human being in, in essence? Uh, I mean, it gave me some fantastic relationships, um, friendships, and it, it gave me, it's given me huge opportunities throughout even my career because obviously I've been involved in rugby as well, but there's, you know, I went to, uh, where did I go? I went to a, a professional premiership rugby club recently just on the back of something else I'm doing at the moment, working with a, a, a recovery company. And I went to see the, the premiership team. And within that environment, over lunch, I bumped into my old academy manager, you know, somebody who used to coach me. And so there's still friendships going on that that were forged, you know, 20, 25, 20 years ago, you know. Mm. So that that's the thing within rugby in the UK anyway, is that those friendships, mm-hmm. those those interactions never get forgotten. And mm-hmm. you do to people and, and the world is small. Uh, it 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 did give me an uh, an insight into professionalism early. So mm-hmm. I've never I was never fully fledged professional. Uh, I was in professional setting, but never never made steps towards being a full-time professional athlete. But I was immersed within it with other people. My peers were, you know, the better players and they were contracted fully. And so I I could experience what professionalism was like and how it was trending and moving. Mm. Um, so it gave me some great perspective of what, what it would or could be like to work in sport. Um, and... I think it just it, it led to a good level of accountability as well because mm. within the environments I was in, you yeah you would perform and you would come in and you would review and you would critique it that that performance as a group collective or an individual with your coach and then you would put you know right to those wrongs across the subsequent days and then you would try and improve on the next performance and I think there's a lot in that mm. for for your own personal development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did take that forward as a a lesson through all my career very early on through to current day is asking for feedback, you know, mm. the big, big one, and asking for thoughts about, you know, what could be going better, what could I do better, and not, not looking for praise. That's not what feedback is about. It's part and parcel. But that reflective cycle process mm-hmm. that happens in sport in a week-to-week basis, 
is a great lesson for life mm-hmm. because it keeps you grounded, I think. If you think about we won, we won last weekend and then we've just been turned over this weekend against individuals that that we you know, we assumed we'd, we'd beat, um, resting on your laurels is often where you do make mistakes. And mm-hmm. so to reflect on that and understand why is a big lesson. Mm-hmm. I think many people in life that or situations in, in everybody's lives where they probably have just gone, okay, made a mistake there, I'll move on. I'll just sort of eradicate that from my mindset or my memory uh, and it won't happen again. I hope it doesn't happen again, yet we make the same mistake. So I think it, that, that's a big lesson that I really mm. enjoy in the, the sporting sense. That's awesome. It's it's interesting. I'm kind of curious your viewpoint with, um, especially having gone and worked in Major League Baseball, There's every sport seems to have its own sort of cultural fabric to it. Rugby very much is. I, I've worked in it a bit, not, not at the highest levels, but there was there's always a sense that there was a social engagement in rugby like this connection of with your mates across the field across the pitch versus you know when you play you know baseball or hockey or certain sports there's that that i don't know common common thread of fabric isn't the same you know i'm just kind of curious having played it and i never i've interviewed a few people who've worked in rugby but i'm curious what your out outtake is on why it's so much why is it so much different in rugby that social interface versus some other sports that maybe don't have it the same way yeah i think this sort of like brotherhood you talk about is Mm -hmm. is if you look at the technical tactical components within rugby, you really need people around you to front mm. up. You mm. really hinge on the on the effort of people mm. around you because it's such a physical game. Um, and that's you know take a, an, a comparative game like the NFL, which is equally, if arguably, not more physical, right? Mm-hmm. But there are just so many sub-components and sub-teams to that. Mm-hmm. Plus there's so many numbers that, that maybe that hinged brotherhood becomes a bit more, di- well, quite a bit diluted. So within rugby, I think it was always this context of like, we're in this together. And my experiences in baseball were fantastic. And it was just different. But what I did notice that for a team sport, it felt like a group of individuals coming together, going away, working on their very individual components so that on game day they could come together, show up, do what they do best, and that that would lead to success. Um, But in rugby, it was that we had to do this together. It was such an interplay of interactions in the sport that you needed to communicate, you needed to, to run together in the straight line, you needed to make a tackle together. And... It, it just wasn't this isolated, independent, independent element within training. It just you just couldn't feature like that, and you couldn't practice like that. So probably the the necessity of the technical tactical side of it drives that togetherness because you rarely practice apart, you know. Whereas in baseball, the whole schedule is set up for throwing, you know, throwing uh, practice and hitting practice, BP, etc. And fundamentals is still small. It's like the infield working together. It's not even the whole group, you know. So, it's it's probably that that to be honest. Yeah. No, I, I love that take on that, and I'm actually I want to try to spin off of that into um, you know your experience in baseball and how you had to change mindsets. But I'm going to come back to that because I want to 
parse out the story of is it rugby and training for rugby that creates an interest in performance and and your educational uh, direction or how do you how do you become interested in what you end up doing professionally it was actually um so i was always interested in a career in sport right so i realized quite early on that that my uh athletic ability was was limiting in terms of getting a full-time contract but enough to play a competitive level of, of rugby so i had to get this balance right and i was like well i can't rely on a career in rugby um it could still come but it's not something i can rely on and so i went down the, <clears throat> the academic route pushed my studies hard and did my masters and and i actually took an internship to come to the states and came over and worked with the u.s ski team but my, my interest at the time and these are, these are lessons learned, right, when I look back at key moments in your career. I felt that because I was a rugby player, I knew that I knew how to lift in the gym and I knew how to train. It was just sprint hard, run long and far and hard to be fit, and it was just lift heavy weights and recover with a protein shake, you know. And I felt that that was <clears throat> sort of SNC 101, job done. And I went to the US ski team as a, like a hybrid intern. It was sports science, biomechanics, nutrition, strength conditioning, physiology. Um, and I quite quickly saw some fantastic equipment that was used for very specific reasons, like eccentric technology for the downhill element of skiing. There was force diagnostics, strength diagnostics being used from the moment I walked in the door to define programs. And I was like, wow, okay, I don't, I don't know anything. And that was... That was the interesting moment for me. That was the catalyst to go, okay, there's so much more in terms of problem solving here that suits me better than the, the thought that I wanted to be involved in a lab around numbers. Mm. So I can mm. still be involved in sort of like problem solving in the physical side on the ground with the athletes in the gym. And, and I realized that like my, my personality led me to, to coaching because it just naturally meant that I was good at interacting with people. You know, through my university degree, I spent time working with learning disability individuals mm. through local schools to fund myself through some studies, but also to learn how to coach um, because I thought, oh, maybe I want to be a rugby coach. I don't know. Um, and so by chance, I just I understood that I was good at coaching at that time. I was like, okay, well, the stars are aligning here. I need to, you know, see this for really what it is as an opportunity to help athletes and coaches solve problems to improve their performance. And I really love that in the ski ski team world because it was very outcome driven. It was, it was based on time. It was a stop clock, a stopwatch type sport and it, it could be really def defined quite easily. Mm -hmm. And so I, coming back into rugby, it was quite difficult to, to apply the same features and actually going back to baseball was amazingly refreshing because I found myself in this world of performance problem solving in a real simple sense again. It was, mm. we need to hit the balls out of the park and we need to throw pitches fast and we need to be able to get the balls fast. And, and that was on N equals one, every single athlete we needed to do that with in their specific positions. And there was nothing confusing it like tactics or a referee or, or anything like that. Um, mm. And it made it a little bit clearer again. Um, it's gone sort of full circle. But, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that first experience was where I realized, yeah, performance problem solving is what I'm drawn towards. And my medium of, of sort of delivery or my part in that 
is going to be the physical preparation side of things, which was strength conditioning. Mm. Uh, so I sort of came home to the UK and just refocused some of my personal development in that direction to close that gap because I wasn't studying strength conditioning. I was just studying physiology and sports science. Hmm. How did how did uh, working with uh, kids with learning disabilities serve you and in, in, in maybe in your patients or your ability to create uh, strategies for problem solving for them? Yeah, th- that was a, one of the best experiences of my life in terms of mm-hmm. coaching. It was to, to walk into an after-school club um, to see sort of the joy on these kids' faces because they were going to get some activity going. And for me to to realize how agile I had to be in the moment and that I can plan all I want to plan, but 95% of it is not going to go to plan. And so really it was have a start point and have a desired end point and have some understanding of the tools or the, the structures and drills that you want to get, get you from A to B, but be ready to be agile. Be ready for the individual that you know, thrives with what you've done and the individual that um, needs more support. And how do you utilize others, you know, other sort of learning assistants to help you be agile, as I call it. And what I call is push and pull in your coaching. How do you push more with an individual, take more time with an individual, or pull them, pull them back because they need a regression? It was really fantastic learning experience. Patience was a, a, a strong feature, but I've I've seen that in all sport environments irrespective of sort of learning um skill Mm -hmm. um but yeah it was it was where i learned quite quickly to 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 be agile and be ready to be adaptable in the moment and Mm. and if you can enjoy something irrespective of how flustered you get you'll probably be less stressed Mm. so to go in with the mentality to embrace it, whatever was was a big feature as well. I had a friend of mine, but best friend, who tried to do it with me, and he wasn't embracing the situation before he got there. Never, mm. he mm. just always entered that environment with um, a defeatist attitude, mm. and that that was just you know he you know, he didn't really want to coach anyway. But I was like, well, this is for me something I'd like to do, try my hand at, um, and what better way to test myself than this environment? So. Yeah, it definitely gave me some lessons early on. Do you think that's part of, like you wrote in your note to me in preparation for this, you said, I've never really experienced the grind concept that people talk about. Do you mm. do you think that's part of why you don't, like your, your level of expectation of the immediate moment is less a def- definition of what, you, what you're going to experience? No, I think for, from that reference, it, it, it's about the... <laughs> Managing, knowing what I, knowing what gets the best out of me. Mm. So, so in that environment, I knew that, that, uh, I embraced that environment. So I was stepping into an environment that I knew I could function well in because I embraced it. And Mm. the purpose was not the financial side. The purpose, that was a supporting benefit, but the real purpose was career development. It was me becoming better at what I wanted to do. Um, in terms of, I think the rule still still applies though. So you can, you know, people who work this grind thrive in it because it's exactly the pressure they they need, the pressure that they they need to produce the best results. You know, they need to be working all hours a day to produce those results, and it absolutely fits with their lifestyle needs and wants. And I think that's okay as long as they're healthy with it. 
and that they don't expect that of other people because everybody's personal and professional needs and wants are always very different and mm. they will never align. Um, I think that the way I've, you know, I've never really experienced this grind, as I told you, was was just that I've, I've worked in elite sport, I've worked a lot of hours, but I've always found time to buy back. I've always bought time back for myself as such, not financially, literally, but um, for every overplay of my time and effort and energy, I've always given myself back time. And mm. I think that's the rule of thumb that I've always stuck to. And so the roles that I've always worked with have satisfied those needs and wants. You know, one of my professional needs early on, or wants, sorry, early on, was that I would like to have a work-life balance, but my needs are that I need to be coaching. So the priority was to coach. And mm. there wasn't the perfect work-life balance, but it didn't flatten me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much to it to get it right, which comes down to boundaries, conversations, managing expectations, being real about what it is you're stepping into um, versus what you want and what you need. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that that's akin as such, but there are definitely some common themes across those situations. Mm. So, you know, part of unpacking some of that you what was your first role that you were paid for and and what was eye-opening about that experience for you my first paid work role was in the in back in the uk after the ski team i came back what was really eye-opening about that was being offered two jobs in two academic institutes both for sports science roles hmm. So they were both academic institutes, not professional institutes or professional sports, but they were doing high-level sports science with, you know, endurance teams, uh, local talented athlete schemes, funded models, etc. I was offered both those roles off my coaching experience. So when I talk to people I sort of mentor now, I'm always talking about understand what's essential for your job moving forward so that you can plan to have those competencies, but also don't go above and beyond to get things that aren't on those job descriptions you're trying to get because keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing that shone through for me in those environments was my coaching experiences within elite environments. So anyway, that brings me into a university which I've just in the last month restarted at as an employee part-time. I've gone back full circle uh, as a lecturer. And what was really cool about that environment was the balance, the work-life balance. And I think until you've just said it now, it's probably the light bulb moment that set me off was that <laughs> by jumping into an academic institute, I was automatically given you know, 30, 35 days holiday. Plus you're going to have the three weeks at Christmas, the three weeks at the Easter and people aren't micromanaging you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're just pulling together in the right direction to educate people or, or work to the KPIs that they're working to. And you, I remember going out in the morning, I'd go out at seven o'clock in the morning, I'd go for a two hour cycle, two, two and a half hour bike ride. I was road cycling at the time. And I would road cycle, finish uh, back at my house, pick up a bag I'd had pre, pre-packed, cycle the next 20 minutes just to work. And I'd be in at about 9.30 because my first sort of appointment wasn't until 10.30. And, that, and, and that, that didn't matter as long as the work got done. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really psychologically safe environment, a really psychologically safe environment. And I just wanted to do the best work I could do. 
hmm. that environment. And it, it gave me a real good insight into quality over quantity. And there was days I was in at seven as opposed to out on the bike at seven. And there was days I was staying late. But there was this really amazing fluctuation of me being able to manage this schedule against my wellness and lifestyle priorities hmm. as opposed to being regimented. It was a really, really great environment. And so, yeah, I think you probably drawing it to my attention that that was the catalyst for me to on every interview ever since I've probably gone right well what is the schedule what is the the what is my time what is work time how do you operate um you know what expectations are there and it's not I don't think it's limited me too much I think if it's if it if I've ever been turned down a job then it's because it wasn't right f- for me in that sense, probably either. Hmm. Uh, I just don't know it because you don't get a lot of feedback, you know, all, all the time. Yeah, yeah. But so I you, in- you interviewed the job versus the job interviewing you. In yeah, hundred percent. I think obviously at the right time for those final mm-hmm. stages, I think, I think I know that at the Astros, one of the bits of feedback I got <laughs> in the, after the first few months was it was good feedback. And it said like, you're doing a really good job of um, understanding the, the personalities and the people, and that's one of my sort of like strengths is to be agile with the individual I'm working with because mm. everybody's different with mindset, their personal experiences, how they see the world. Um, he said, and I'm I'm really pleased with how uh, like efficient you're being. I'm like, okay. It was because I, through the interview process, I was pretty, you know, not disappointed. He said, I was uh, unnerved by the fact that you were going to be quite lazy. <laughs> And I was, I was like, okay. And I said, no, dig into that for me. He said, well, you just wouldn't, you, you just asked a tremendous amount of questions about how far from the ballpark to downtown and what is the working schedule and what is, can you share typical schedules? What time do you start? What time are you in? What is the expectation? Hmm. And, and he said that just came across. And I said, you know what? Like that's, it just came across as me wanting to make sure that I was coming to do this job for exactly the right reasons. And I know people have started jobs and then gone, this isn't what I thought it would be. I thought, well, why didn't, why didn't you ask? Mm-hmm. Because it's what, what better way of a reference point to set your expectations and create boundaries? Because if they mm-hmm. give you that role, you've automatically created the boundaries. Mm-hmm. If they've said, no, as long as you get the work done, there's no pressure here, you mm-hmm. know? And I always remember first spring training. I knew that I was not going to change the culture in the first few months. But 45 days straight of 5.45 a.m. meetings was just, just didn't make sense to me, especially when people weren't training until like 7, 7.30, the absolute earliest. And lo and behold, in year two, once, you know, you get to know the system a little bit, we the thing that was affecting us was whether the front door was locked or open traffic. So we just locked it till 7 Seven thirty, and we'd have our meetings for seven a.m. and nothing changed. Training times didn't start; still started at nine thirty. You know, um, and so you know, you ride a few things, obviously. But I had those those reference points to say, look, this isn't elite for the athletes. It's also it's definitely not elite for me. But if it's not elite for me, it's not elite for the athletes. It's not elite for it's not performance orientated for my 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 staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Ch- Checking those things out early is important, but that's really hard, right? From a person trying to break into the industry, mm-hmm. um, really, really hard. So, I think I just got fortunate with the, the the flow of job opportunities. One was an academic institute where they wanted coaching experience, and 
I really thrived in that work-life balance environment that I just took it on then. But we've mm-hmm. got people trying to break into the industry at the elite level straight away with no skills to talk about those expectations. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- it's, it's interesting because I'd like love to unpack that a little bit with you because yeah. I know you have a, a, a real interest in men- mentoring and do a lot of mentoring now, and I do myself as well. And there's, you know... I think a lot of younger practitioners, um, regardless of whether their um, initiation into that level is very early on or a little bit later in their professional, you know, um, trajectory, I think the perception is that those roles are golden roles that could sort of, you know, tr- act as springboards to other things or give you credibility or some sense of, you know, uh, identity in the industry because you're working in these situations. So mm-hmm. I think people are want to bring, have those kinds of conversations for, for because of exactly what the gentleman said to you, which is the perception that you're, that people are going to think you're, you know, you're not in it for, to win it, so to speak. Uh, and yeah. so what, what served you inside of you to overcome, and maybe it didn't even exist in you, but to overcome that, I would call it an egocentric element of us all that this is, you know, this is the big time. And I, and I have this chance to be in the big time, um, you know, I'm going to compromise all things. And I think that's the, the escalator people get on very quickly and then realize maybe it's not what they wanted to be doing. But. Yeah. So, you know, I always talk to the guys I mentor at the minute about needs and wants mm-hmm. and separating personal and professional needs and wants. And, and whether I did this consciously or not, it's definitely something that I'm trying to pay forward with the people that I work with. And that's, I, setting up your needs and wants will help you make clearer decisions. Um, and so for example, if I am a 22 year old practitioner who wants to get into the elite end, or I want to get into sport as a strength condition coach, technical coach, physio, uh, therapist, um, I'm going to have to align, <laughs> excuse me, have to align my understanding of what it is that is important to me professionally and personally. So if we say personally, the, the needs might be very little. Like it may be that I actually don't need to even make money at this point. Maybe I've got a loan that allows me some freedom for six to 12 months. And so that personal need helps me with my professional need that is I need to get coaching experience. Well, it opens more doors than for somebody who has a, a, a personal need to earn money to pay rent, but also needs to get coaching experience. So, an individual I mentored, you know, drove for Amazon part-time, 20 hours a week, to provide himself with the financial aid to support his personal need of rental mm-hmm. in order to open the door for him to stay in the, the location he was in to, to get some coaching experience as well. Mm-hmm. And so these things, if you can get them right and you know what are your needs and, and uh, professionally and personally, will help you make some decisions. Um the, the wants are nice to have. And as you go through your career, the needs fall off. Like once you have that first job, you're like, well, I I need to earn money now. I don't have a freedom to, to do this for free. So that's in there anyway. And I uh, need, I don't need coaching experience anymore, but I need now to be front facing with elite athletes. That's what one of my motivations is. Mm. And if you look now at my need, which used to be working in elite sport, 
my need now is to be working with people in elite sport. I, I, I feel like I want to be coaching coaches now. My need is to be coaching people, not coaching athletes. Mm-hmm. And they'll change throughout your career and, and staying abreast of what, what they are and what's present and relevant and current in those areas is really, really important. And I think that's what I did early on was realize that, you know, I, I, I moved down to the South coast of England for that first job. I didn't need to be close to family. I didn't need to be close to anywhere. I could go and be a man on my own on, on, in this role. I wasn't giving up by anything by moving um, because I was aware of those needs and wants in those mm. two parts of my life. And that, that made it really easy to make those decisions. And then there was jobs that I turned down or turned down interviewing, but didn't, didn't entertain even applying for mm-hmm. because it didn't align with those needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's where we get it a little bit wrong is that it's an oversupply and a demand that, that we feel like we've got to throw everything into the hat. And then suddenly we get a job offer and we're like, I don't really want to move. Like, and it's like, well, why put yourself through that? Because I think that's mm-hmm. a disservice to yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're not being true to actually what it is that you want to do. And, and I say mm-hmm. the dog business is one that's another life lesson for me is that if you can find something you you are really good at and you enjoy and you can mix them, you can make finance out of that. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we associate uh, an S&C job or a trainer job with the highest prestige always, which is sport. But dig into what it is in that job that you really enjoy mm. and what you're good at in that job. And if it's that you're really good with clients and solving problems for them, well, then that comes into personal training as well. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be the elite end, or maybe it's that you want to work with elite athletes, but in a in a private facility in the off season, and that satisfies that need. Um, so yeah, with the, the dog business, I realised I was I loved helping people solve problems for them. I yeah, they wanted to go on holiday and they wanted to trust somebody. I enjoyed the dogs. I enjoyed walking. It fueled those needs and wants for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was good at being organized because you've got lots of things going on at the same time with lots of clients. Um, and I was good at having honest and frank conversations as well, because mm. some dogs are just not right for the environment, just like some athletes are not right for the environment. So if you can mix things you're good at with the things you enjoy on the simplest level, there are more opportunities out there than people realize. Mm. And we just look at the sort of like 5% opportunities. What, um, ser- what served you early on in your exploration of needs and wants? Because it's not the average 22-year-old or whatever that like, uh, looks at that. I mean, what, that's one of the things that I'm often exploring with people that I'm mentoring is kind of getting them to have self-reflective practice and to recognize, in essence, their why. Why are they getting into the work that they're doing or before they actually start doing it? And we're kind of domesticated into, you know, you got to go to university and get a professional career and get a job and then you're you find yourself sort of looking at what's the pinnacle and that's what you strive for but i don't think the average person has question has conversations about needs and wants in their 20s 
Uh, But then they find themselves, you know, a bit despondent about why they've spent the last. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, I see some of the conversations now on, on Twitter, et cetera, around people's kind of burning out quite early and kind of um, getting disillusioned with what they're being paid. And the industry has gotten on this kind of arms race of you got to get your master's PhD, et cetera. And people are coming out at 28 with a PhD expecting to get paid X and not getting paid. And so they're getting just, you know, very disenchanted with the whole thing but i think they've also been sold this sense that they had to run up that escalator as fast as they could and then they found themselves at the top with not really knowing why they ran up it in the first place your thoughts on that you yeah. quick break here we'll be back with our guest in just a moment we've been lucky at leave your mark since the very beginning almost that matrix fitness has come on as our main sponsor and they remain steadfast to this program because they know how it serves the community at large the same way they serve the human performance community as well and basically if you need something in the world of human performance whether it's to build a performance facility or training facility or fitness facility whether it's a home facility you're trying to build or a hybrid facility out of the garage to work with clients It doesn't really matter what the actual goal is. They have a product for you. They have the equipment and they have the service capacity to make sure that you're getting what you need when you need it for what you need it for. And that's the key is they are a full service organization. They are worldwide. They are one of the biggest uh, equipment manufacturers in the world for human performance. And they remain dedicated to bringing great products every day to you, the consumer, so that you can do what it is you need to do, which is take care of your clients and or take care of yourself. I encourage you to go over to team up with matrix.ca and check out their products today. Ask them the questions you need answers to, and they will do their best to take care of you. Thanks again, Matrix, for taking care of LYM. Do you struggle with finding the reason why your client keeps coming back to you with the same injury problem or why your client that you're training is having limitations in their performance? Do you find yourself challenged with how to progress the exercises that you're going to do or regress them or understand what actually is going on with their movement and what may need to be tweaked or changed or cleaned up so that they can function more appropriately and perform better? Do you find it challenging sometimes to work in or with other practitioners and professionals so that you can create a solution for the clients or the team or the organization that you're with? Well, reconditioning is all about providing you with an operating system for navigating those environments and those situations. It is a fundamental process that scripts and brings together the worlds of therapy and performance in uh, a way that no one else is really doing. It brings together applied neurology, the foundation of uh, why we move and how we move, and gives you the tools to make the changes and understand where you can take your tool set and be more tactical with it and get greater intervention 
uh, outcomes and better outcomes in general for your athletes and for your clients in general. So this is not just a system for athletes. It's a system for every human being. And we also believe that every human being is some form of athlete. So we need to look at the human being, what it is that the human wants to do and take care of business when it comes to getting them prepared to do what they want to do. So if you're interested in upgrading your professional practice, run over to reconditioninghq.com today and take a look at our offerings. Uh, We have a beautiful course curriculum and program that takes you from point A to point Z or Z if you like Z better than Z and helps you take care of uh, all the people that you need to take care of on a daily basis. A reminder that the doors are open for application to the LYM Life Lab that begins right at the start of May. And this month, we'll be taking applications, sorting out who's going to be a part of this program. We want people who are dedicated to self-reflection and growth and contribution and want to make a change in their world and be the best they can be. I suggest you head over to lymlab.com today. Check out the program on the LYM Life Lab page. If you want to, there are two free downloads there that you can jump on um, just to get you started with instigating change in your world and uh, working on your mindset and other skills that we're going to be dumping into and having a lot of fun with in the program. There's a lot to it. Uh, If you read the fine print, so to speak, on that page, the Leave Your Mark Life Lab page, you'll see some of the different things that you're going to be learning, the things we're going to be doing, and how we're going to operate through this next year. I want to uh, invite anybody who wants to instigate change in their lives and create the best situation for themselves under the guidance of mentorship and community. Jump on it today, uh, head over there and apply, and if you've got any questions, just feel free to PM me. Take care. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, I think the first thing is I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have a conscious exercise or task to go through those needs and wants. But what I did have was people that were ahead of me in their careers that I was speaking to. So I was seeking out mentors in an informal sense. Mm-hmm. And I was, I mean, one thing I was always good at, at was just con- talking with people. If I knew them or not, I could ask advice, have a conversation and construct things in a in a way that leveraged me outcomes and got answers it was for my my benefit but I would always try and be polite and, and offer value I'd back so I was always interacting with others I was never waiting for things to just happen I was always curious and I was always asking for advice and I think I probably asked for advice in the industry more than my family mm. if I'm remembering back rightly I, I I think I think I just remember telling my parents what I was doing I was going right I'm going to America I've decided to go to this internship they go oh great okay and then they'd be like I'm I'm moving to Brighton oh okay you know and it was my peers in the industry that I'd been asking advice about um things that that kind of probably helped me realize what my needs and wants were without formally going through the exercise Mm. what's really interesting is that comment around people like on the escalator up to the absolute maximum desirable criteria of roles and I just think there's so much missed opportunity Mm -hmm. Uh, equally I have other people asking me do I really need to get this certification or do I really need to get this 
CSCS or, or UKCA. And I say, but I know that there's disparity in the industry about what is seen as essential. But irrespective, if somebody applies for a role and both of you have all the criteria and you, you feature very similarly and one has the credential and one doesn't, that's specific to the industry. So one has a, a UKCA or a, a CSCS and um, uh, you know an ASCC from, from Australia or whatever, then I'm going to be taking them for a coaching role mm. versus somebody who's got the same credentials and a PhD, if I'm honest. If, if I'm looking for somebody to be a coach, I want to see all the evidence there. They're coach ready, coaching mm-hmm. ready. Mm-hmm. But equally, I just had to fight tooth and nail for my lecturing job because I didn't have a PhD. Mm. And so one of the prerequisites is I'm going through this, this PG cert now as part of my, you know, my contract to say that they're going to give me a teaching qualification because it's a prerequisite. And it's going to teach me a fundamental amount of new information about how to interact and teach. And, and so you have to shape your career your your career needs or your skills and attributes and qualifications around the job needs and mm. a master's i think is 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 required i don't think it's necessarily essential mm-hmm. but to be enrolled in a master's and completing it alongside coaching i think is the blend that's needed mm-hmm. i would argue if a phd is needed for higher level coaching or, or, or even entry level coaching, like because we're we're actually just talking about getting into the industry, aren't we? You know, mm-hmm. I think get into the industry and then consider a PhD. It's something I would consider in the next five years or so, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm nearly forty. So, yeah, I think I think people have their their not their priorities wrong, that, but their understanding of what the priorities are in the industry are malaligned to mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and that's the the thing that people need to get on board with is like don't forget if you want to be a coach what does that mean i need to interact i need to get experience coaching i need to work with large groups i need to work with different demographics i need to do an easy analysis of sport and i need to interact and have difficult conversations and collaborate i mean tell me where you get that in a phd experience really mm-hmm. Apart well, from you, need, you need to enjoy it too. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hundred percent. So, yeah, I think when you talk about like, how did I go through that iteration of my life? It was seeking out people. I was looking for mentorship. Didn't realize it, but people to give me advice, give me reality. Um, and then for the on the flip, now I'm talking to people and saying, look, like you need to be specific about what it is you want to do. So if you want to be a coach, you need to get experience coaching. And mm-hmm. if that means you need to network, you need to network. If you need to off, you, know, you need to understand what you can give up for free, if that's the way that you're going to differentiate, differentiate yourself. And that's the one thing I keep saying is what are you doing that the person who you studied with, who also has the same aspirations, is not doing? Mm-hmm. What will differentiate you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're people are coming through the industry thinking, right, I've done, done my degree. So, so as, you know, hundreds of other people, what are you, what have you done in that experience to differentiate you on exit from everybody right. else that's just done the same as you? Right. Um, I've got a, sorry to go on about this, but there's, there's a, to, to illustrate this point, I've got a student 
I've only ever had one undergraduate enrolled in my mentorship program because it, there's a little financial burden and obviously going to uni, you're, you're, you're paying for that time anyway. And it, it's the most growth orientated individual I see in these environments because he's slightly out of his depth because he's, he's with people who are in the industry and have got two, three years postgraduate experience. He's currently going through like, what is VO2 max testing in lactate testing and all these things that are gold standard textbook and we do a session on conditioning and principles and he, he says can i get 20 minutes with you after you know, aside from the session i said of course part of the process and so we catch we said why are we using or why were you sharing your experiences like work to rest ratios around conditioning and not doing it based on you know heart rate and percentage vo2 max i said well tell me a sport that you enjoy team sport he said oh, i love Rugby, great. How many players in a squad? Yeah, 45, 50, great. How long does it take you to do a VO2 max test? 20 minutes. So set up, set down, 30, 30 minutes per person. Where could we do this? Oh, you could do it at the rugby club. No, don't have a lab. So I'll have to do it at university. You're talking three, four days of a week to just do one mm-hmm. assessment. Mm-hmm. I said, is that, do you think that that's real world? Do you think that's solving the problems and helping move the needle towards other things that are a priority and he was like no I didn't I didn't think about that but it's just so obvious I said yeah all I've done there is just giving you the real world experiences that you'll get in another two three years time but you've actually got them ahead of everyone else Mm. you've got some you've suddenly seen the world through a different lens and he the lesson there is just that by putting himself out there against his peers he is the one who's seeing some of the real world by seeking experiences mm-hmm. of others to guide him or at least mm-hmm. to give him a new perspective and I thought that was ph- phenomenal it was just a real nice light bulb moment mm-hmm. um yeah so what are you doing to differentiate yourself and this guy's putting himself out there right. with qualified people and he's still a second year student you know very cool yeah what was what's do you remember um, a particular piece of advice given to you by a mentor that really struck you at the time yeah, I think if I if I go back to my um, couple of different times, really, the f- first one was in the U.S. Uh, ski team, you know, mm-hmm. and we were, you know, talking about my sort of career path, and and he said, you know, you you looking at where you're good, not looking at where you're weak, mm-hmm. and and so we sat down and we talked around, you know, my experiences within training within rugby meant that I you know I knew all the basic lifting techniques I knew how to uh, coach it correct it I could see errors so in that sense I was really good at that point but I didn't know anything about strength diagnostics I didn't know anything about you know eccentric training methods for example so you know we would he was helping me dig into the real specifics of the gaps in my knowledge and these things were going to be or set me up for, for greater success in roles moving forward. Mm. Rather than waiting for being in that role, he was helping me identify that there's some areas here that you should spend some time reading or learning from others in or taking a course and so on and so forth. And, and that was really useful for me. Um, and that's why myself and, and Josh Fletcher, who you know well, have come to 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 produce this manual that will come out around career periodization and identifying your gaps. That was one of the most fundamental things for me because I, 
I haven't sought that kind of career advice out, but I'm giving loads of people that kind of advice. Mm. It's counterintuitive, um, or not counterintuitive. When we think about it, it's very intuitive because we apply these principles of periodization to athletes. Mm -hmm. And we say we can't peak all at the same time these physical qualities. We need a layering effect and we need a, there's going to be a lag effect. It's going to take four years to get to this pinnacle. Yet in our careers, we think, today is good enough to be where I want to be tomorrow, but mm-hmm. it's not. So, you you know, how can you layer your your career development in the same way? And that was a really cool experience. I didn't know what he was doing at the time, but it's what myself and Josh had uh, produced. And then there's, you know, principles have been a main theme for me uh, over the years. Um, people, you know, a couple of early experiences in, in the Institute of Sport, um, you know, a guy called Raf Brandon, who was very just straight down the line and, and black and white. You know, I remember him talking to me about like, well, what is it you want to change? What is it you want to adapt? You know, well, therefore your sets and reps need to match that, you know, and that you should keep the main thing, the main thing. One of the things I was trying to do was program to cover all bases for my own ego just to make sure there was no stone unturned through fear of missing it out and, and he said are you achieving nothing like it's keep the main thing the main thing and make sure that that's a driver on this day or this session um and then the other the other influence on my career was was being involved in in the UKCA very early on because throughout the experience I became an assessor and probably one of the younger assessors at the time and Throughout that experience, I, I could just see how people were coming into that environment to get a certification in coaching. It was a coaching award. You were critiqued on your ability to coach. Well, what what is coaching? Coaching is the ability to affect change, change something in someone. As a physio, we can be a coach. As a nutritionist and dietitian, we can be a coach. It's the ability to affect change, yet we still learn explicitly about processes and going through systems of warm-up and and we list all these exercises out and again that was one of the sort of like experiences early on I think I absorbed that lesson Mm. through the process of accreditation and being Mm. an assessor I was like the ones that are really successful good coaches get it see something change it the Mm. ones that don't get it realize that they're just being a facilitator Mm. and they're just whatever they plan they're going to do whatever they see Mm. so have more you know more of an observation um within the coaching process and make sure Mm. that you you have the balls as well to change something you know Mm. um that was and that was probably the big lesson i brought into baseball was don't don't continue if that's not good enough let's Mm. let's make this kid better at this movement um but it was such a conveyor belt manner Mm. Uh, it was like we've got to get through the next thing so like, well do we why don't we spend time here and we can do that next time mm-hmm. uh, yeah so a few lessons there yeah well it's interesting uh, listening to you over the few of those different threads it's something that i've discovered as well is that um as an industry we have a habit of um defining structures and systems and approaches to our athletes for their success one of which is to monitor and and reflect on change and understand change and understand how you're um 
you know, vacillating within that change and what, what an, a particular input does to, to, to create change or not create a response. And so we create all these, you know, ass- assessment tools and monitoring tools. And yet when somebody says, well, you should have a reflective practice and recognize what yeah. you're doing and how it changes you, people go, oh, that's all airy fairy. Well, <laughs> it's exactly yeah. what you're doing in your job every day. Like that's what you're yeah. telling your athletes to do. You're just, yeah. it's a different format. It's now on on you to reflect and understand yourself and what you're doing and how it's changing you right yeah and i think the if you've got people around you i went to um <clears throat> i went to prague last week to do some consultancy with with them out there and on the wednesday i watched some of their sessions and worked with their snc coach and then on the friday they asked me to to, to lead a, a warm-up into some specific movement change of direction stuff um with some yeah, prerequisites of it not being, you know, too much of a hard session. And so we had this planned out and, and we did the session and I demonstrated it was a good 40 minutes of warm-ups and, and the session itself. And after the session, I said to the, the guy that I'm, you know, going to be helping develop, I said, give me, you know, what did you enjoy? What Give me two or three things that were good. And he was like, bang, rattling them off. And, and, and I was like, great. I said, now give me two or three things that I could have been better at. And he, he was stumped a little bit. I was like, you know, this is, I need this. You, know, you need to not only reflect on what I could have done better, but I need to hear it as well. Mm. And and one one of the things actually like, matched up, you know, like the, the setup for the day was around, you know, me setting it all up, but they had all the water and the hydration ready. And I, you know, I just forgot about that station because I was so focused on the content. Mm. He brought that up and I was like, yeah, in the moment I was aware of that. And then he gave me some other areas that I was I didn't have the context to, which was fantastic. Hmm. I was like, that's the stuff that's going to help me. And and but him having comfort in giving me that feedback, it's just constructive. It's not negative. It's mm-hmm. growth. And in any environment I'm in with coaches, it in coaching coaches, it's it's you know, what did he do well? What, give him you know feedback. What were the two things he he did really well that stood out for him? What could he do better next time? Hmm. And that constant iteration of quick reflections keeps you honest in mm-hmm. a good way keeps mm-hmm. you thinking. Um, yeah. so i think that's really important and if you there's so many environments that we have that we go to this grind again where it's just next job next job next job next job that it doesn't allow reflective practice doesn't, mm. there's no there's no time for it so if you're not getting it from the people who are leading you to, you have to take some ownership of yourself and go mm-hmm. okay either I'm reflecting on myself or I'm seeking feedback. And I, I share this story a lot. I, I asked for feedback in my experience in baseball because it wasn't coming through a formal route. Mm. So I set up my own feedback mechanism. So I sent out anonymous surveys and said, hey, can you feed this back to this you know, Excel? It was a Google Sheets. Feed this back, but anonymously. Uh, start, stop, continue is a model I use a lot. What, what am I doing really well that I should continue? What am I doing um, that is potentially limiting me and I should consider stopping or changing? And what am I not doing at all that I should, you know, consider starting? Because it was anonymous, it was great. They would feel free to be open. One of the biggest bits of feedback came back that I just wasn't aware of was you should stop wearing shorts and flip-flops to the ballpark. And I was like, why? Like, I'm going to the ballpark and I'm putting on my uniform at the ballpark. But the, the culture of the sport is that the owner can be there at any point. The owner 
could walk through the car park and you should, you know, should be in a collar and, and trousers and shoes because that's how we should be expected to dress. And I'm like, okay, I can get on board with that because I have the context now. It doesn't mm. mean I necessarily agree with it, but it, that that's irrelevant because perception is somebody else's reality is right. say so well. So, but I would never have got that. And, and mm. the, the simplest thing like that probably helped the odd relationship. I wasn't aware was limited just by the fact that they saw me as being casual to the ballpark. And, mm. and so for anything, it's to raise awareness of how others perceive you good and bad mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Their reality has to be your reality as well, because you mm-hmm. have to be adaptable to that. I love that. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to my podcast, but I always read everybody's purpose from a book that I have called The Day You Were Born. So I'm going to read yours. Oh, nice. Yours, September 8th, great. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Virgo 8 is is who you are. Your purpose is to learn to balance your responsibilities, helping others, but not depleting or limiting yourself, to use your faith and your spirit to overcome obstacles and to teach others that nothing is impossible when you're focused and believe in yourself there is enough for everyone's need but not enough and not for everyone's greed gandhi strength courage and hard work are a piece of cake for virgo 8 they easily take on tasks that make others cringe and perform them with little effort either they look for all the all answers from within or don't trust their instincts few really know them control is important to have it they will keep their world small gifted with either great faith or a lack of it. They have a talent for self scrutiny, which can translate into self criticism gifted with insight into the human mind. They make great psychologists. When it comes to relationships, they want someone to be hard on them. Their challenge is to believe in themselves. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I will have to say after listening to you for the last hour it reads pretty pretty uh yeah. pretty spot on that's kind of cool i'm gonna have to ask you to send me that or, or send me uh wait where it's from and I'll, I'll get a copy of that that's uh no problem that's fantastic my pleasure well an hour has passed very very yeah. rapidly um i will end with saying to you um what is what is kind of your your mission moving forward because you're you know, you've you've done a lot, but you've got always always still got a lot ahead of you. So, what are you what are you trying to to achieve or create now? Yeah, I think I think I'm I'm content at the minute with the I can come back to my personal needs and wants, and, and my life at the moment is to to you know buy back a, a little bit of my time again, even more so. And so, I'm doing things that keep me present. I spent a lot of time traveling. Um, and I've had I've spent a lot of time taking my wife and family to to the US. So there's been a lot of sacrifice there. So um, trying to stay more present with everything I'm doing. Um, but even with that, trying to just help different environments. Uh, mm. As I said to you, I don't have a, a, a desire to be writing gym programs and coaching on the ground at the moment. I'm not saying that that won't come back. My way of coping with that is to go and educate strength conditioning coaches at degree level and coach them. Mm-hmm. Um, do that instead but yeah i'm i'm doing that and then the mentorship side of things has been really rewarding it's it's getting to a point now where i'm repeatedly rolling out a six month sort of program twice a year um it's opening up opportunities to meet a fantastic number of different practitioners and i really enjoy opening doors for people um in terms of connections and connecting them Mm -hmm. But I have this motivation to do that with the people that in, 
invest their time with me as well. So mm. it's this real nice community feel between the sort of practitioner that I've got on board on my program. So for anyone listening that would would want to um, explore that, the the website's collaboratesports.com. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm really spending a lot of my time and enjoying it. Mm. Awesome, Dan. It was really a nice pleasure Thanks. to meet you and to spend yeah. an hour with you. And hopefully one day it'll be a, a face-to-face. But uh, until then, be well, sir. Thank you, yourself as well. Thanks for the invite. Yes. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.